Hey everyone, it's James. I'm excited this week to bring you an interview that I did with Lucas Lappy, a design engineer and co-founder of Doris Dev, a full suite product development agency working with brands like Open Spaces, Equal Parts, Lalo Strollers, By Humankind, and Great Jones, and recently co-founded Canopy, which is reimagining the humidifier. I've worked with Lucas in the past on projects for Doris Dev, and he's been kind enough to lend me a heavy helping hand on some personal projects. This is the first podcast we've ever done with an engineer, and we hope that especially for students, it will shed a light on what engineers do and foster appreciation between the disciplines as we sweat the small stuff together. Also, we are excited to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Onshape. Yes, the CAD program software that I have been talking about at nauseum for the last two years. Onshape is a browser-based CAD software, which means that you can run it on any machine, laptop, tower, tablet, smartphone. Apple stands Rejoice, a parametric CAD software that you can run on a MacBook. Actually, one of my favorite things to do is trackpad CAD, which is super intuitive and makes it easy to do CAD on the go. Onshape is like if SolidWorks got sent back to school to study UI design. It has a beautiful interface and has really smart features all baked into one. No more separate features for boss extrude and extrude cut. It's all in the same feature. It also has an amazing project management system called, called versions and history. This way you can iterate, saving all your versions in the same file. It also tracks all the changes you've made if you screw up, which knowing you, it will happen. But you can go back in time and restore to any previous version. If you run into any problems, they have an amazing customer support as well as an enthusiastic community of users. If you can't find a feature, Google it. If it's not in the software, there's a chance that someone in the Onshape community made the feature custom, which you can download. Now, Onshape is not offering our listeners a discount. Why? Because it's already free. You can download a free version. Actually, it's not even downloaded. It's just on your browser. And it's fully featured, and you can get right into modeling. Your files will be public, so I don't recommend doing client work with the free version. But for students and educators, you can access the standard plan free of charge, which means private files. There will be a link in the description of the podcast episode. When you sign up, do us a solid and put minor details into the company field. That way, they'll know we sent you. That again, put minor details in the company field. And if you'd like to do a trial version of the professional plan without having to talk to a salesperson, please email our contact, Kiernan Murray at K-M-U-R-R-A-Y at ptc.com. That way you can get right into modeling. Coincidentally, Onshape is the CAD package that Doris Dev uses. And Lucas said, and I quote, we love Onshape. So give it a try. What have you got to lose? We'd also like to thank our promotional partner, Let's Design Daily. They post amazing work from designers from all around the world. So check them out on Instagram at Let's Design Daily. And as always, join the Minor Details community on the Discord. It is an amazing, awesome, sweet, 
spectacular community of designers sharing their work, skills, experience, and opinions on all things design. I swear I saw Eve's Bahar in the chat once, but it might have just been an emoji. And please... Subscribe and like on YouTube, follow on Spotify, give us five stars on Apple Podcast, and do whatever it is you do on Google Podcast. And now for our amazing intro by Kiyoshi the Kid. Hit it! Welcome to Minor Details. I'm James. And I'm Lucas. And I'm an industrial designer. And I'm a design engineer. (laughs) And we are two people in different cities sweating the small stuff. Lucas, welcome to Minor Details. James, thank you for having me. (laughs) I feel like we are on like a Brady Bunch theme theme intro. Yeah. Oh, God. I would hate to do a Brady Bunch-themed, like podcast with that many other people that would be be (laughs) disastrous just be talking over each other um but uh but yeah so this is a long time coming uh i know lucas so lucas is a co-founder of doris dev which is and i have it written up right here uh, a full suite product development agency based in new york city well Maybe. Yeah, exactly. Based. <laughs> Working with brands like Open Spaces, Equal Parts, Lalo Strollers, By Humankind, and Great Jones, and more recently co-founded a company called Canopy, which is reimagining the humidifier. And uh, and so I met I met you, I think through like Andrew Brace, Brace Makes. Uh, That's right. And uh, and you brought me in for some rendering work, and I was. I guess we both were at Quirky um, at different times, though, because we didn't. I don't think we overlapped at all. I, when were you there? I don't remember you from Quirky. I don't think if we were overlapping, we never talked. Yeah, <laughs> I uh, I was there. I was an intern. I guess it was fall of 2012 until yeah, from September to December. And so I think what you arrived in 2013. Exactly. Yes. I think I was there that summer. So I like miss you by six months. Yeah. But you were there. How long were you there for? Uh, Like two and a half or three years till the very end. Till the bitter uh, end? Were you you like the last cut? Correct. Yeah. So I got, I was part of the last round where we all got laid off. But I was not part of the future quirky iteration, which got bought for like three million dollars out of bankruptcy. Um, <laughs> that that those are like new quirky people. Yeah, Wait, are they still operating right now? You can go on like quirky.com. It's silliness. You can still buy a pivot power and another power strip that's in this has the same CMF as Pivot Power, but is right. not designed by Quirky or anything like that. It's like a Chinese factory oh. white labeled product. Yeah. Um, so they still exist. You can still sell, you can still buy a Quirky product. 
So are they are they selling are they making new pivot powers or like not not new iterations but are they continuing to make pivot powers or is it just From my stock? understanding they are. I think they've actually they still are making new pivot powers. Yeah. Um but every year at like housewares there's like another there's like five quirky stalls because it's all like licensed products to different people it's right. very odd it's right. so weird yeah it's yeah it's uh it's maybe more more quirky than the original <laughs> uh well uh, yeah for those who don't know well quirky if you don't know quirky it was like uh i i mean i always describe it as like a crowdsourced social media community like members of a community submitting ideas and those ideas being voted on by the staff. I mean, this like it was like this kind of democracy, pseudo democracy of product Very development. <laughs> but uh, and then those products got developed. Some of them through to production. Some of them only to like rent the rendering stage. Yeah. Um. But the I would say, would you say the pivot power is like the most famous of the quirky products it has to be yeah and i think it was the most successful yeah i quirky should product i should pull it up um but um what was what was the first project that you worked on when you were at quirky do you do you remember <laughs> yes so the first project i worked on was um i was an intern and my like manager was um leading a project called drift and for some reason drift was this like very high profile product it was a balance board oh yeah um and um but there's pivot power yeah so innovative truly yeah so yeah so the premise premise behind pivot power is like with a normal power strip you can get sort of like crowding of the outlets so that like with different sized plugs you can't always fit them in um and so the pivot power is like this idea of yeah pivoting the outlet so that you can you can fit all of your plugs um onto the outlet but uh yeah i mean very it's clever like, it's kind of it's i mean it's a fun product and i and i always appreciated like there was a i feel like there was a big brand refresh that happened like like a year or so after i left Mm -hmm. And uh, and I appreciated the like the brand refresh of because this was the original one, right? Yeah, exactly. And then you can find like this the surfaced one that's a little it's like more pillowed. Yeah, yeah, I always liked that a lot. But you worked so the first one the first product you worked on was Drift. Yeah, uh, let's, uh, see. Well, let's see if you can find it. Yeah, Drift. Yeah, Drift balance board. <laughs> Quirky. Let's see what comes up. Um, there you and go. so uh, there we exactly. So it was this balance board and the whole thing was it was going to be made in america um okay so it was very kind of odd I don't, I don't know why but i i inherited that that program with those constraints and i was a junior in school um and the product had some problems there was like leaf spring that like centered the like balancing arm um and it kept on breaking 
Mm. And then the lead engineer left. So I was the only person who knew anything about the product. Um, <laughs> so I was responsible for fixing the pro the problem um, and getting it to market. Um, and I had this like leaf spring in, in the back. I designed this like sil this chunk of silicone that you just like pushed in and it acted, to, it would just compress and would self-write that arm. Mm. Um, and that was the first product I ever got tooled. It was like, I, I remember being in on like a Saturday and getting, um, these parts and being like, oh my God, like these are, this is the first time I've ever tooled something. Like I had this idea, I made a prototype and three weeks later we have like a thousand of them in the office. Yeah. Um, and it was such a cool, weird feeling to have that happen. Um, yeah, that's and then awesome. you're like, oh no, there's a thousand of these. Like, I hope they work. <laughs> like, there's, there's like that realization. Um, but that was the the first project I got to open at Quirky. And then, um, if you look at the if you look at Quirky Vine Stop, uh, that was the first like product that I got to design myself. Yeah, um, it's it's a wine cork. Um, a die cast wine cork that like helps a wine bottle stand up on its side in the fridge. Yeah, I am. Okay. What, what was the name of it again? The quirky vine. Yeah. Vine stop. Stop. Let's see if it comes up. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Um, and I got a knockoff one. I was at a trade show and like a company gave me a, like a giveaway and it was a knockoff fine stop and i was like oh this my. is amazing like <laughs> this was like 10 years later also yeah um, if i remember correctly adam pascal designed the the vine stop he did he did yeah and i remember this was he he handed this off to me being like it's a very hard thing to model like good luck uh yeah. and that crop it, the two, there are two legs uh, so to describe this, it's, you know, a cork uh, that sits on a bottle and it um, has two legs that help it stand up. And the two legs come together in what was known as the crotch area. Um, <laughs> and that was very difficult to model. And it became a huge quality issue because this is a die cast uh, aluminum part that then gets high polished. Um, it doesn't actually get coated either it's not an it's not anodized or nickel plated so polishing was a pain um and so polishing in that crotchal region became a huge quality huge quality issue later on <laughs> i mean isn't it always um yeah that's uh that's great so you actually did you say that you were working for quirky while you were still in school yeah so i worked all the way through my senior year. So I came in as a design engineering intern. Um, my, I, we did, we had a co-op program at RPI, which is where I went to school. And so we did five years. So the summer of my fourth year, um, so it was gonna be a rising fifth year, I did an internship at Quirky um, and stayed on um, effectively part-time. So I, I would work at Quirky uh, Friday and Monday. 
And then I would take the train <laughs> back up to school oh. Monday night. Was at school Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Thursday night, I'd take the train into the city uh, and be um, at eval Thursday night and woodwork Friday. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah, eval was where the company all came together to review the ideas for the week. And uh, afterward, there was there was much alcohol to be had. Uh, and I the mean, it was, it was great. I mean, for me, I was coming, I was coming right out of school as well. And it was like coming into quirky was like a dream come true for a student. Like, I don't know how things, so you went to school for like mechanical engineering or. Yeah. So I, my degrees in mechanical engineering and, um, something called design innovation in society, which is a completely BS name and makes no sense. <laughs> um, I going into school, I wanted to be, I wanted to make products. I knew I wanted to do that from the ground up, but I didn't want, I, and I was like good at math and engineering and like, that's kind of what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to build rockets and I didn't want to build like planes or jet engines or work at GE that just sounded really miserable. Um, and I, so I wanted to make consumer goods. Um, and so RPI had this program that was, uh, and I didn't want to be a artist. I didn't want to go in from the industrial design realm and, you know, get a fine arts degree or, or an art degree. I kind of regret that now a little bit, to be honest, but I was not, really? I, I could not draw. I, that was not at all in my wheelhouse. I was like a tinkerer through and through. Um, yeah. I could not have gotten into an ID program. I like had no portfolio, so it, it wouldn't have been a good fit. Um, well, you could have gotten into Virginia Tech's uh, program. They didn't require a portfolio. Oh, really? Yeah. So they would have taken my math SAT scores. And <laughs> called it a day. I'm sure. I, I mean, maybe, but you know, that's, um, it's interesting though. I, I mean, I wonder, so was there a particular product or a, like an experience that you had that you were like, I want to make product like, you know, there's like, there's like specific, designs to me that are like oh that clearly led me on the path to being an industrial designer was there something that led you along that's that path there there's something very specific and it's like that's truly embarrassing uh and, and not it shows like any total it's it is you know this is who i am and you'll understand me way more now knowing <laughs> this um i i mean i always wanted to make products and i saw products as business. Like my dad is an inventor and built a business around drug testing devices. And I was like, he's a doctor originally. He's effectively a failed doctor turned inventor. I was like, that's cool. But like, well, if I, you can't I, do invent, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I grew up with like the idea of like, you know, product businesses as like the core, like this is what you want to do and so my idol was ron popeil and for anyone who does not know who ron popeil is uh he is a inventor of many products but also the infomercial oh um, wait so he invented the infomercial he i think he's like credited with inventing the the infomercial um but his products are like the rotis home rotisserie 
oven thing Wait, and the pocket and fisherman. It? He invented set it and forget it. Exactly. Oh my God. This is the best origin story I've ever heard. And his, it's just the, <laughs> exactly. Um, he is like the first like pitchman type guy. And right. so I always saw product as like, the, I would I idolized him for like make you know designing products and building them and selling them and like building a business around inventing products and selling them. Um, and later, you know, I've got into his background a little bit and like he's got a pretty colored history. Like his wife got in trouble for hiring a hit against him. <laughs> and it was like caught in like a sting operation to get him killed. And then they got remarried after she got out of prison. Like all this, like, it sounds like he's like a crazy dude, but that, that very much describes like, I wanted to make consumer goods and I wanted to like sell consumer goods. Yeah. Um, that's, that is great. I, I, that story, I mean, you know, there is something in in the American culture that we love a good salesman. And infomercials are like they're made for entertainment. And and so like yeah. I feel like when you found quirky, was that like a, a light bulb, a GE light bulb <laughs> moment? <laughs> I think so. I I I haven't thought about that, but yeah, like the stuff we were making at Quirky was infomercial crap, effectively. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, QV, we did, there was a lot of QVC product, like a lot of stuff was on QVC. So yeah, it was infomercial crap. Ben Kaufman was this amazing salesman. Mm -hmm. um, and so I definitely, I think that's right. You're, yeah. uh, Although I remember a few times when it really mattered, Ben would mess up the demonstration of a product for like the fir <laughs> first time use. I, I think I remember being there live for the um, what was the egg yolk extractor product? Pluck. Pluck. Um, so so yeah, Pluck was like what was it? It was like clear plastic, and was it silicone or what was the rubber? Yeah, piece? it had like a silicone bulb at the top, and it would yeah. suck out egg egg. It would separate egg yolks from egg whites. Yeah, but like the first time like they unveiled it was during one of the, the Thursday night. Um, uh, what's it called? You just said the term eval eval. Eva. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and they brought out a bowl with an egg and like it had been working all day. I think I had watched like Aaron Saxton do it just like over <laughs> and over and over. And then suddenly when it, when it mattered, when it was being unveiled to the world, uh ben was unable to extract <laughs> the yolk but i really love this product it was like i feel like there is this really there's this really thin line between like novelty and innovation i mean i don't know that i would call this like innovation <laughs> but but at least like i mean i feel like quirky there was there was at least a sense of humor to it where it was like yeah, like, you know, we're doing innovation, but it's also like, this is, it's just like fun. It's also, there's like a spirit of, of fun to the product as well. Not taking it totally. too seriously. 
Um, I mean, quirky, that was the best part about quirky was like, there was this, and I think the reason why I joined and was like so enthralled with the, the idea was quirky was going to launch products no matter what, because there, the thesis was like, we don't know what a good product is or a bad product is, but like, <laughs> we'll see if it sells or not. Um, and as, as a result, like they let a stupid 21 year old design a bunch of their products that shipped like, and as a result, we were launching like a hundred products a year at one point, like things what? like that, where <laughs> I, we shouldn't have been doing, but <laughs> we got to do it anyway. But that's, that's like the startup mindset. And that's what attracts people to startups, right? Is like that sort of spirit. Yeah. It's like the shit, like ship or die. Yeah. But and Quirky was like ship, ev ship a product every week or die. Right. Oh my God. Yeah. Did you, so as a 21 year old, uh, like designing things that for manufacturing, getting them shipped, do, are there any horror stories there? Um, like were there any big flubs? Hmm. I no, not at quirky. I would say like there were definitely, um, I mean, there have been a million flubs along the way and past and in the future there will be. Um, but I think the main thing about quirky was like a lot of stuff just didn't sell. Mm. Like, well, like, did you, like, did you, for your, like, for your work, did you ever put like, yeah. Did you ever make any mistakes or, or, you know, not like, not like you made a mistake, but that there there was something with the product that that malfunctioned, something that you had worked on. Oh, 100 <laughs> percent. Like I would this and like one example of this is um, there is a product not to be named that has a lot of moving parts in it. Mm. It's got batteries, it's got motors, it's got lots of stuff in it and it moves really fast. And, you know, of the hundred some parts in this product, we designed it to have this, you know, one press fit pin that went in the product. And we had not had any, we, you know, went through the EPT DVT stage, you know, and those are the engineering validation phases, design validation, uh, production validation and we you know tested all those parts no problems then on the first batch the factory while press fitting these pins used a lubricant to keep it inside the machine they were using to press fit and as a result lubricant got between the surfaces that were meant to be press fit together oh, no. so you know, this one link in the chain that relied on this product working <laughs> to find was responsible for many issues um, right. down the line of this from this production run. And that definitely that sucked for sure. And um, so what ended up happening? Was there like how did you how did you even like how did they even locate that issue? 
Because I imagine to locate the issue was also just like an entire project in itself. Yeah. So, I mean, we rerun all, all, all of our tests. We see that this product, as this wasn't actually failing during our reliability testing. It was um, because we actually weren't putting enough force on the he head to cause mm -hmm. this to be fast enough. So once we put enough force on it, you know, this pin eventually would slip out or after a long enough period of time. Um, and we caught, we ended up getting the problem. The factory reworked the units, but there were definitely users who got pressed that broke, uh, oh. which it sucks. It's like, um, as a, you know, someone in product development and my girlfriend gets to see this on like, you know, cause we're all always testing, you know, pre-production units and like, you know, first batch units. She's like, oh, I shouldn't buy a first launch product, right? I'm like, absolutely not. You should not <laughs> buy the first run of any product. Don't yeah. buy launch products. There's so many kinks. Um, and it's truly part of just the product development cycle for a lot of startups because if a product's supposed to last for, you know, three years or five years, a lot of these products are being developed in five or six months. Right. So it can be very hard to re do reliability testing in that condensed amount of time. Sure. Um, yeah. And that was sort of like the promise of quirky was just like lightning fast innovation. And, you know, there's, there's part of me, and I've, I've expressed this on the podcast before, and there's this like frustration that I have with UX UI designers that like, they put out their product and they just can like immediately like fix all the bugs if they need to and like everything's fine everything's good but yeah like you make a mistake on a product and there's like 50,000 units that all carry that mistake and you know what do you like what are you going to do i mean i mean it it depends on the the size and severity of the mistake yeah right? yeah but, i mean it's and oftentimes there's product in different phases of production so you're like well we have a new batch arriving of product in a week that product was made a month ago we all, all also have a, a batch in production that's going <laughs> to arrive in two months yeah. so like the batch after that we're going to be able to make this change <laughs> do you just yeah. want like a big red button on your desk that just like shuts down the factory in china just i so it's very funny that like now that we own so i can talk a little bit about doris dev and like how yeah. that and like what you know now that we also own, own our own brand which is also causing which is bringing like to light client woes a lot so mm. um just to talk through doris dev we're a product development service company we work with a ton of brands uh to help build their product as an outsourced product development team so um mm. we have design engineering in-house um project management, sourcing, quality control, logistics, operation and fulfillment. Um, we effectively help teams that are oftentimes made up of a business founder and a marketing founder actually build a product and get it to market. Mm -hmm. um, and in that world, 
as the working for these brands, building products in their vision, um, it's, you know, we're working within the constraints that they give us. And for instance, like we don't have the ability to, you know, just change their packaging design will will nilly or like oh like i don't like the the logo doesn't look right there like let's move it on the next batch yeah we you know last month we launched our own brand called canopy which is a which is a humidifier which you mentioned and i have complete control over everything on the product and, <laughs> and so, is that good or how do you feel about that let's just say packaging designs changed three times in, you know, the month and a half we've, we've been shipping products. Um, you know, labeling's changing all the time. Colors get to change. Um, you know, different processes are being implemented. Um, so, uh, yeah. So if you see that like purple one on pure wow, this uh, one? yeah, that one, we didn't ship we we didn't actually launch with that color, but uh, a bunch of PR people got that as like a pre-production color, um, because last minute we changed our minds and didn't want to launch purple. <laughs> um, so that was just like that was just uh, once you had seen them in person, you were like, this this is not the color that we want. Yeah, but like too late. We only had so much um, press inventory. So mm -hmm. we launched it and gave it to people and people liked it. So maybe a color that we launched shortly. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I, one thing, one thing I'd like to do is connect the dots between quirky yeah. and Doris dev. Um, yeah. so quirky, quirky files for bankruptcy. Um, everybody gets laid off. But what happens essentially, uh, and this is going to be a really cheesy metaphor, is is like somebody picks up a dandelion, like, and just blows on it, and all the seeds, like Quirky, has splintered off all of all of these offshoots, including Doris Dev. But you also have, and our listeners will maybe be familiar with Visibility Studios, you know, industrial yeah. design firm. Um, Ben, and it seems like I, I was looking at your LinkedIn. You also did some stuff with, uh, like Buzzfeed. There was yeah, a Buzzfeed so, Innovation Lab. Yeah, um, and yeah, Eight Sleep has a bunch of quirky alumni there. Um, Kangaroo has Aaron Saxton, who's yeah. leading their industrial design, and Kate Fallon, um, I think, is there as well. Kate Fallon, as well as a UX. Um, Friends of, gotta, uh, friends of, of course. How can I forget friends of Adam Pascal and David Sutton yeah. as well? Yeah, yeah. David, David came on. He did came on like literally right after I left. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting. I I heard somebody who it's it's funny. I've done so much work for Peloton and and so much of Peloton. There's a ton of quirky people there, and there's also a ton of MakerBot people there. And I don't, um, I think it was, uh, Peloton, um, head of product Maureen who was saying she worked at MakerBot and she was saying like quirky and MakerBot essentially 
populated New York with design and engineering talent that has kind of created the startup scene that you have in New York. Would, do you think that's correct? In, entirely. Like, I don't think there's another product company in New York that had as many en engineers or industrial designers as Quirky or MakerBot. Yeah. Um, and then as a result of them literally churning over a hundred percent of their staff, <laughs> um, at, you know, for both of them, like within a year and a half of each other, or two years of each other, it made hi hiring for product people in New York really easy. Yeah. Um, and so as a result, you get like all these great product people in New York. Um, and also in Hong Kong. So our Hong Kong office, uh, Doris Deb's Hong Kong office is 10 people. And half of that is quirky people because yeah. quirky had a 50 person Hong Kong team. That's, um, that's crazy. Yeah. Um, the, but yeah. I can, I can tell you I, the story I like to tell from quirky to like the direct line from quirky to Doris Dev is Quirky was this crazy place where we just had to launch tons and tons of products. And even though we spent a lot of money, we effectively had a fixed budget and we had to get really creative on how we made products um, efficiently. Um, and, you know, we were driven by, you know, Ben Kaufman and this crazy system of making a very, very diverse range of products that were design driven, that were like, you know, ID first, cool gadget, cool feature that didn't fit into the like normal product development of like find a factory, take what they make, change the color, put a different logo on it and like ship the product. Like that's how a lot, that's how most products get made in this world. Yeah. Um, and we, uh, myself and a lot of the, the founding Doris Dev team got trained on, you know, build products quickly, design you cannot fuck with like your job is to retain the design integrity throughout the entire process and do it really really quickly um and when quirky ended um the team scattered i went to a single skew um product startup the other team also did that they went to a company called raiden um and at that point we launched you know these products, I moved to Hong Kong um, to run product at an electric toothbrush company. Um, and we launched these products. And then, you know, after nine months of being at these companies, they've launched their products. They're not launching a V2. What does the product team do? Like a product team still needs to help out along the way. There's still new POs to get placed. There's still issues that come up. You're still making running changes, but you don't need a full-time team. Uh, so we effectively took um, these two product teams, smushed them together and used these companies as our first clients. Mm. Um, and then we started taking business from new product development startups that had kind of by accident aligned um, requirements to Quirky. They had you know really, really strong design visions and they had to get to market really, really fast <laughs> because um, at the at their startups are running out of money and they've like told investors, raised money to investors saying like, oh yeah, launching your product's really easy. Like 
if we can do it in three months, like I know everyone says you can't, but like we can do it. So we're coming in, you know, two months after they told their investor they were going to launch in three months and trying to get them to market. Um, and some of those first clients, uh, Doris Dev had was Lalo Strollers and Great Jones. Yeah. And I think um, those are great examples of products of how the whole Doris Dev thing happened and kept growing. And since we've, you know, extend, extended our, expanded our uh, services um, and we've added more clients into the mixed health and build products. Yeah. Yeah. The, I would love to talk about the Lalo stroller because, you know, again, the people in our community with knowledge of visibility studio and just, you know, I also just had a baby and, uh, and we've, we've actually, we have a Lalo stroller. So I have some notes, uh, nice. but, <laughs> but, uh, no, it's a super robust, like great stroller and, and like affordable on the market because the market for strollers is like, there's, there's the super low end, there's su super high end. Um, uh, but, uh, but yeah, like, so what was that process? Like, how did, how did all of that begin? Like, how does a client find you guys and, and start working with Doors Dev? Um, so I, I mean, we're entirely word of mouth effectively. I mean, we get referred clients by previous clients and other founders, uh, a, a lot of the, uh, the VCs. Um, send clients our way because they want to make sure their investments are are sound. Um, and Lalo, for instance, came. I don't know how we got connected with the Lalo team with Michael and Greg, um, who at the time, oh, actually, through a, a friend who worked at Artsy, effectively. Um, Greg was at Artsy at the time, still at his day job, had this idea of launching a stroller. Um, and we, um, started working with them and said, strollers are really hard to do. They're really expensive. They're really big. They take a really long time to develop. Um, so we actually had this, um, parallel development path. So they hired visibility and they hired us at the same time. Oh, wow. And we both started work at the same time. Vi visibility went through user research and design research and started designing a product. Um, and then at the same time, we started finding factories who could make this stroller. Um, and what we ended up doing is finding a factory that made a great stroller that was not yet launched um, that was very, very close to development, to completion. And at the same time, visibility designed a stroller that was very similar to this factory's almost complete stroller. Um, <laughs> and so what we ended up doing was merging the designs together. Mm. And for effectively $50,000 visibility, or uh, Lalo got a unique stroller um, yeah. a custom stroller, um, that's unique to them that no one else is selling that has the design touches from, vi from visibility, um, and enabled 
um, them to launch on time and on budget. Um, alternatively, to launch a a stroller would have taken year, two years, three years. Right. How does one find a stroller factory? Is is this, is this an industry secret? Are you gonna Are you gonna reveal the secret sauce? I a lot of it really dates back to Quirky. Quirky had such a huge supplier network mm. um, that we tapped into, and um, an advisor to Doris Dev is um, the person who was head of sourcing at Quirky, who after Quirky went to work at McLaren Strollers. Um, oh. so at the time that we were, um, sourcing for Lalo, McLaren had gotten bought by good baby, which is a big Chinese vertically integrated stroller supplier. Um, they own their own retail, their own retail and they own their own bins. It's insane. They're huge. And they own McLaren now as well. And so what they did is they bought McLaren shut like took shut down all of the uh, took business away from all of the original mclaren factories and so as a result all of these factories that were doing 40 containers a week or something like that originally are down to like five containers a week and hurting for business so they're happy to take our orders yeah. uh, with, you know if mclaren was still there if mclaren was still around and get giving them these huge orders they would tell us to go away and like yeah. wouldn't take our meetings huh that's that's wild so yeah the when you're when you say that the visibility stroller was similar to the factory stroller was it similar in just like larger features or even like aesthetic details like how how similar are we talking so it was always the product was always going to be a full-size stroller um it wasn't going to be a compact or a fold a folding stroller so it was, all, it was always going to be full size um the shapes were similar the wheels were almost exactly the same really yeah um and the um but i mean there were parts of the stroller that were like hideous like so ugly like the foot plate was on the stroller was like insane looking and so <laughs> like that was like and you know the curves of the handle bar were like didn't make any sense like all, right. all a lot of the buttons got redesigned like it was very similar but there were a lot of like very ugly ugly features do you do uh, you have an image of that by any chance and and maybe you can't pull it up now but maybe maybe after the fact we can we can put it in the video let me see and see if I still have it. Um, I I probably have parts of it still. Um, I'd love to see that. Um, but the um, the soft goods were entirely redone. Yeah. Uh, by visibility. Um, so a very early on, like the soft goods were all were always like a blank canvas, but the. Uh, and the bassinet changed and the seat changed and stuff like that. But uh, the, scoff, the soft goods and the parent organizer and that kind of stuff was all, um, was never, um, was still, was not designed by the time we got involved with the factory. Yeah, cool. And, and I'm curious, I mean, maybe we can, 
um, get into some, a different kind of conversation here um, in, in talking about working with industrial designers uh, because, so was your first exposure to industrial designers quirky? Like, had you collaborated with any of them in school? Like, were there, was there an industrial design program at your school? No, I wish there was. I mean, if there was, I would have snuck my way into it, most likely. <laughs> um, my first experience with industrial designers was actually at Hasbro. So I interned at Hasbro in college um, and got to work with um, a bunch of industrial designers there on a few programs. Cool. And, and what was that like for you? Was Was that I mean, you say you would have snuck your way into the design program was when you met the industrial designers at Hasbro. Did you have that feeling of like, oh, this is this is what I should have done or I oh, I would say a little bit. Unfortunately, the designers at Hasbro were responsible for just like rendering up Nerf blasters in like a million different ways. So they were yeah. kind of like pretty beat up. Um, but there was one engine, there was one industrial designer there that was like doing the like internal architecture on Nerf blasters. And it was, that was like, I want this guy's job. Like he <laughs> has like a pretty sweet, sweet gig. Um, but it was even, even there, I, I remember there being this push and pull or this like fight over the industrial designers want this cool feature. And the engineer is going, well, design it then. And the industrial designer is going, well, hold on. Aren't you the engineer? Shouldn't you work this out? Yeah. They're like, no, that's not our job. Our job is to like cost engineer this product effectively. Yeah. Um, and that's very similar to the world that kind of Doris Dev lives in as well, where oftentimes we get this distinct handoff from an industrial design team uh, it generally comes to a client oftentimes where um, we will work with a client who hits our books and says, Hey, I just got this design done, but like, it's, I needed to get made now. And like my industrial design team can't do that. Right. And I th think it's a bit of industrial design firms, maybe not being as forthcoming with, with their handoff deliverables and clients not always being, uh, not do, not doing their homework and understanding that industrial doesn't mean factory in that, right. in, the um, in the term industrial design. So we oftentimes get designs very, that are very preliminary from clients that said, okay, I just had this design firm do all this work and I, I want to get it made. And our first question is like, well, have you seen a prototype? Like, yeah. do you actually want this made is the, oh, is like the most important that, thing. And how, how often have they seen a prototype? If they're working with, you know, a good design firm, it is 80% of the time. Yeah. Um, if un unfortunately, when they're working with a lot of freelancers, it's almost never. Right. Right. Um, what are you saying or, about freelancers? <laughs> <laughs> um, it's often, you know, with the design firms, they 
put that into you know part of their scope of their scope of work a lot of times and you know and unfortunately it's just harder for a lot of other design firms that like you know are pressed for cost and they cost out the 300 bucks or you know thousand dollars it's going to take to make a looks like prototype um, or even a rough prototype because it's so much easier um to show a render and everything looks good in a fucking render yeah like, Oh, no doubt. Um, unless, um, unless, yeah, you make terrible renderings. Yeah. Which I've seen. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, you checked out, have you che- checked out Render Weekly? Oh, the like W E A K L Y? Oh, yeah. I, I know, I know of its inception. Oh. And, yeah. In my, I mean, it may or may not have anything to do with the minor details community. I didn't give you guys enough credit. I'm sorry. (laughs) But no, I think that this is a really interesting topic because obviously we've never talked to, we've never had an engineer before on the podcast. And I've always been curious. I mean, I started out at Quirky and there was a team of engineers there. So like, and then I went to Lifetime Brands where we had engineers, the, the ratio of designer to engineer was like, it was like 20 to one, but it was... (laughs) It was still, it was still better than than nothing because it was it like, you know, lifetime brands. We were doing kitchen tools and gadgets. Like, it was a lot of it was using an engineer as an advisor to projects because nothing was that complicated. Um, so I've just kind of always my entire career has been around engineers, but I can imagine that there are other people that have never had that experience or that relationship. And even though I've had that experience, sometimes I'm like, am I approaching this relationship correctly? Like what, what would this engineer be like so happy to receive for me? And obviously that's not like, that wouldn't be a universal thing across engineers. Like some engineers might never be happy to see the industrial design, but, um, but I am curious, like for you, what is like a great, what does a great handoff look like from an industrial designer? What is a great relationship with an industrial designer look like? And, and maybe even what is a terrible, like, <laughs> like what's the worst, the worst kind of handoff that you've ever gotten? I, I mean, we, some of the worst I think ends up happening in like vessels. So like primary packaging for liquid or you know things that have to hold volume of something Mm. because kind of the worst that i would say the thing that sucks is talking to a client being like hey we love the design of this bottle but we want it to hold the same amount of liquid but we want it to be smaller and you're Mm. like well that doesn't make any sense (laughs) um and so specifically for you know designers who were designing vessels um or primary packaging the the size is your own is your main job like make that volume look good yeah um and make sure it's in someone's hand make sure it can like doesn't tip over when it's mm. being used things on that note i think are super important especially in primary packaging but as a 
the thing that we love to get is a client that has a handoff package from an industrial design firm with a color material finished like um, deck that like makes sense where it it's not a a something that has to get wet that is wrapped in fabric or <laughs> um so or thought, something thoughtful like cmf thoughtful cmf that like makes sense um that is referencing somewhat similar products in a similar category um uh, in a similar price point as well um mm. and um a designer who has built a prototype that has been effectively reviewed and approved by a client. Mm. Um, and that prototype doesn't have to function. It does it. I mean, its main goal is to kind of get a green light from the client uh, for all the A surfaces. Um, it all just all the cosmetic aspects of, of the product. What we struggle with is when we get a, a program and the client goes like, I love it. But like I've never actually seen it before, mm. and it's like, well, design's not done yet. Like, yeah. we're gonna have to spend a lot of time doing the design because you really have not approved the design yet. Mm. Um, and then you know, continuing on, we love working with ID firms throughout the whole process because we unfortunately have to make changes um, all the way. Uh, for cost, for timing, for a, a lot of things, we are the we're kind of stuck between the client saying we want it to be cheaper and the ID firm saying like you're gonna mess everything up if you do this. Yeah. So, um, I ID teams that understand, yeah, okay, we've got to make the product thirty percent cheaper. Okay, I get it that we can't make it out of you know this cool material it's or we can't have it painted or it has to only be a in mold texture or something like yeah. that yeah um that's you, really helpful yeah do you think that designers should have contingency plans for those events or do you think that like it's important for the design intent to remain a certain way until you reach that roadblock I I personally think that it makes a lot of sense to keep the design intent as this guiding light, but under because there are, are so many permutations of a design that an I, a firm can do that it probably I think it's too hard or just too complicated to say that okay we're we have you know the high cost low cost medium cost design here like design all three, go get quoting for all three, and then let's come back and decide. And then actually we're going to throw away one of them and do another permutation instead. And you end up just like with designing three products at the same time, you can't yeah. really make a decision. Um, I would say maybe just our alternative finishings, for instance, where, oh, I wanted to design part in, you know, a die cast metal, but I'm okay with like vacuum metal plating it. Mm. Yeah instead yeah that makes sense did you ever have any moments for instance at quirky where you got into like a heated exchange with an industrial designer and like have you have has the industrial designer ever been right <laughs> like i feel like i have this impression of like the relationship with 
with uh, engineers and industrial designers being like little brother, big brother, like just, and the industrial designer as the little brother being like, come on. Uh, I mean, they really great industrial designers are amazing engineers. Mm. Um, and a good, like David Sutton is such a good engineer. Um, he was head of design at Red Antler, um, is now a partner at Friends Of, and I think, and he was head of design at Quirky, and he's always like this, like, big figure to me, because I was like 21 when I was working with him, yeah. um, but he is... And he's also, like, big in stature, and, and Australian, just, yes. just, he's just a triple threat. Um, he... I would say for most industrial designers, when we go back and forth, I'll be right. 80% of the time with David, <laughs> I'm down to probably like 55 where I can, wow. I'll, I'll, I'll be right in a battle. He's, I mean, he's very good. Um, so, so that, so. that begs the question, what makes an industrial designer a good engineer? Go, I mean, going through, understanding the constraints that a product needs to kind of fit through to get made. Um, for instance, uh, I, I, I like to say that like, you know, that your role or your expertise is dictated by the people you have to talk to. So an industrial designer is speaking to users and speaking to a client mm -hmm. and they're kind of, you know, pushing those things together. A engineer is speaking to a client, a, a client, a program manager, an electrical engineer, maybe, and the factory engineers. So we're informed by that information. Yeah. Um, and then the factory engineer, you know, is informed by like his project manager and the scheduling manager at the factory and the sourcing manager at the factory. Um, and so it's really these zones and an industrial designer that can get into out of the ID zone and make their way into the mechanical engineering or sourcing one um, and understanding how stuff has to get made, they end up being really, really dangerous, I would say. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah, dangerous and just like they can actually put up a fight in a meeting with an engineer. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and, and their designs get better. I mean, like they end up thinking about it and going, Oh yeah. Like, yeah, we can't do that. Okay. I'll change. We'll change the design. It yeah. becomes a much more level playing field. Yeah. Um, and we're all, we end up speaking the same language at that point. Yeah. That's interesting. So, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I feel like I saw a lot of that at lifetime brands. I saw a lot of older designers that just like, they just kind of knew, they knew what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. And it was just, I mean, uh, you know, I think, I think there, obviously there are many types of engineers that are many, many types of industrial designers. And some are working for agencies where it is all about like design intent and like the PR of design and the beauty of the object and, you know, whatever. And then there are, you know, places, 
people working in-house who are so like, I mean, the Apple team is just so immersed in the process in like within the factory process and things. I was talking to somebody who was an engineer at Apple and like, I guess how they have it is if an industrial designer wants something a certain way, then the engineer has to do, has to go to the ends of the earth and back in order to prove that they can't do it. Like, um, which is interesting. I, I don't know of any other place with that dynamic, but, but yeah, it just seems like the more that you can actually touch the product, you can actually execute amazing product. If you're an industrial designer with that knowledge. Um, but yeah. And I think oftentimes it has to do with products only have so much runway to get made. Um, and if you're designing an Apple product for a company that just raised $3 million, it's not never going to make it to market. Yeah. Unfortunately. Um, (laughs) but if you're developing a really well thoughtfully designed product that has the constraints of a comparable product in that category, um, that fits within a startup's budget and lead time and all those factors, that product's going to get made. Um, so it's a, I would say it's a cost benefit analysis for these, for a designer who wants to make this amazing product. And at the end of the day, if you're, if the goal is to make this amazing render that looks so cool and, but you may end up the, the client may completely butcher that to get it made. It may never get made because they ran out of money. Um, or do you design a product that's more feasible, but like maybe doesn't have like all those sick bells and whistles with crazy texture changes and stuff like that on it. Yeah, exactly. We, as industrial designers, we need to stop putting bells and whistles. (laughs) Nobody needs that many bells and whistles. Um, but, uh, but no, I mean, I think, um, yeah, I, I, I think there's another there's another part of this conversation and we're we're running up maybe against our time here but the other part of this conversation I think is like the manufacturing side of things and I'm curious like what was your first exposure to manufacturing what like was it overseas and like was there any sort of light bulb moment that you had when you first stepped into a factory, because I feel like in my career, there have been moments where like, I I get my first product back from the factory and like the light bulb goes off and it's like, Oh, this is, this is like a remarkable moment. This is like, this is going to inform the way that I design from here on out. Now that I've, I'm holding something and I'm seeing the way that my design succeeds or fails based on the constraints. But being at the factory, uh, you know, what what was that like for you the first time you stepped in? It, it was amazing. It was in, <laughs> um, I mean, some of the first, you know, real, so I, you know, went to small job shops and prototyping houses in the U.S. But, you know, stepping in my first factory in China was like, it was wild. It was like a 30,000 person factory. Everyone was, it was like a sea of blue and it was being 
around engineers who had worked on hundreds of products that yeah. have shipped tens of millions of units um, and were close enough to the action to be able to say, oh, okay, yeah, I guess there, there is a problem here. Like, let's go to the factory floor and, and fix it. Or let's go to like the injection molding shop and like, let's see what they have to say about it. Let's mm -hmm. go open up the tool and see what's wrong. Oh, I, I see it. There's a, like, you take your calipers out and you measure the pin that's supposed to be making the hole. And you're like, yeah, it's this one that's messed up. Like, we're going to fix it right now. Like, that is something that when you get a part in the US and it's like a finished good, and then it's like, oh, it doesn't work that well. And you like have to pull it apart and see what's going on. That is like scratching at the surface of the number of decisions that got made before it ever made it to your plate. So I mean, I mean, unfortunately right now I can't go to the factories and normally um, our team is in the US engineers are in Hong Kong and China at least every two or three months per person. So, I mean, we're there a lot, um, but it's causing, it, it definitely slows development down. Mm. And you're relying on different team members to be able to review and, and make edits. Um, if you're in the factory, it is so, so fast. And when you're there with a designer as well, I mean, that's the best part because you get to work with a designer, they're there, they see the first shots out of the mold and they're like, yeah, that texture does not look good. I made a mistake. Let's like, let's change the color and let's fully retexture the mold to something else. I was wrong, or it doesn't look nearly as good, or, oh, they've got another sample here that isn't a, a different texture that actually looks way better. Okay, yeah. let's change it now. That's something that you just cannot replicate sending samples back and forth or anything like that. Um, yeah. So any designer who has the, op who is building a product that is going to market, go put it in your contract that you're going to the factory to do revisions. Um, and if you haven't had the opportunity yet, like give them a discount, give a client a discount to get over there or like do it at your cost or whatever. Like I, when I had the opportunity, I was like sharing a room with the client so I could go over there. <laughs> like it was like, I mean, I would. Sharing a room and a bed. <laughs> uh the beds were separate but they were close but enough you, to be but uh, you pushed them close. together anyway you pushed <laughs> yeah. them together anyway um, um that to build strong relationships with clients <laughs> hold hands while sleeping yeah. next to your client um yeah i mean that's uh i i'm sad to say i have yet to make it overseas to a factory i mean my my dad has a rota molding factory in Reading, Pennsylvania. So I've been there a ton of times and that's always like super interesting to walk into, but, and we visited a factory in school, uh, like the Bemis factory. Uh, I forget where that is, but they do injection molding. Like they do the, uh, they do like, well, they do the Bemis stuff, I think for the toilets, but they also, they also did the like target plastic, shopping cart and like a Jasper Morrison chair wow. and random stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, is it like, 
you say you you like you go over there and you're working with these engineers who have been like doing hundreds of products, you know, spending a lifetime engineering. Is that is that a fun relationship or are they like are they stingy about certain suggestions or are they open to things like what what is that relationship like? I it it really depends and like sure. I would say like being going just like your relationship with you know the industrial designer or the mechanical engineer who's building the product it is you get a lot more with honey than uh i don't know what a vinegar fly swatter yeah it's something (laughs) than a fly um like i when I, we spent a lot of time on this first project at this factory. So we we were there every week. And like, every time I went, I brought candy and like, I brought Snickers to like the factory engineers every single time I went. So hopefully they would like, like me when I would be like, yeah, we got to like make this tooling and it to fix this. And they, so it would maybe push them (laughs) over the edge to be like, okay, fine. It's Lucas. Like he's, he's okay. Like, um, He's kind of a pain in the ass, but like, it's okay. We'll, we'll do it. Um, oh my so it's really like building the like relationships with the people who are working on these products to, so they care. So they know when they, you know, want to skip, um, a sap or, you know, the sink in this part is like, it's acceptable for them, but it may not be acceptable for you. You can like push them and go like, we got to fix this part. Like yeah. this, this is not acceptable or this these ejection marks are real, real bad. So, so what I'm taking from this is we should appreciate the quality of the product around us because it was only achieved through candy bribery. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. (laughs) Um, That's, that's amazing. But yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like you, you want, you want through relationships. I mean, I feel like, like I don't, I should probably be sending things to my clients for thanking them. Like I've, I've never sent any like cards or anything. I've always been like, nobody wants to see that, but I don't know, like the relationships, the network, we've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast, how much the network is like such a vital part of the, of the product industrial design experience. But yeah, little, like little nuggets like that or nougats like that. It's just, it's, it's great advice. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's, this has been such a, such a great talk. I, I, I think one last question, maybe, um, unless you, you want to talk about something else and feel free to diverge, but I I'm thinking about the students that are graduating and like maybe going to be working for engineers for the first time in their life. And how how would you primer them for that relationship and that experience? Hmm. I I think build a prototype. Like an engineer will like love you for building a prototype, and it mm. will make that communication so much stronger. Yeah. Um. And I would say, you know most engineers are bad and most engineers don't value design Mm -hmm. and they want to make their their work as easy as possible um 
and you know they are judged on did a product work not was it beautiful not did they screw up the design or not they're judged solely on hey did this product have quality issues or or design issues um in production so they're trying to de-risk the design as much as possible mm-hmm. um so understanding that and if you as an industrial designer can de-risk the design for them that will save everyone a buttload of time and a lot of heartache so yeah. if you can say oh i you know i want to wrap this part in metal and instead of just saying like it you know line wrapped in metal part in your cmf like pull apart an existing product that has a similar metal wrapping and uses a similar technique and an engineer will go all right sounds good they did it we 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 can copy it that'll be fine yeah um that'll save you a ton of time that's great that is great advice yeah so make a prototype and and take apart a product that you can reference for what you're trying to achieve uh do you think candy bribery also works with engineers you know sometimes depends on the engineer um, and to know the diet the dietary habits exactly. of the engineers Observe. you're working with um well this has been awesome lucas i really appreciate your time and um do you have anything that you'd like to plug i mean always plug in doris dev you know yeah if uh we're looking at design interns. Uh, if you want to come work for an engineer, um, hit us up. Um, Doris.dev is our domain. Uh, Doris.dev on Instagram. I will respond to messages. Um, <laughs> uh, if you, okay. uh, depending on when this comes out, getcanopy.co if you're looking for a humidifier. Um, you're probably not going to be able to buy it for the holiday um but are you you backed up on orders uh we as of today um are probably completely sold out for the holidays Um, that's amazing congratulations thank you it was in i did not know black friday was such a thing it it (laughs) is definitely a thing um and um did, by the you, way, did I did I see that Chris Jenner bought a canopy, or did did you send her one? How did that work? Chris Jenner did get a canopy. Um, yes, uh, she got one through a get through some of our give our celebrity giveaways. Nice. Um, it was right in between a right before she said, "Oh, thanks, canopy, for this amazing hu- humidifier." It was. Uh, but thanks Poland Springs for your new sparkling water or whatever. (laughs) I was like, Oh man, like Chris Jenner really like for us, she, she really cares. Um, (laughs) She was going to put the polling Poland spring in her canopy tank. Um, But yeah, canopy has been huge. If you need one, I mean, humidifier season doesn't end until March. So um get one while it's hot or while it's cold rather or dry um and dorisdevswag.com uh if you dm doris.dev uh maybe there's a coupon code for you that uh may bring down a 
the high ticket price. Yeah, and let me let me just show everybody what that high ticket price looks like, because uh, I mean, these are these are well sought after. This is this is the next wave. This is what all the hype beasts are going to be wearing down Canal Street pretty soon. Yeah. Watch out. Um, or we're going to get a cease and desist pretty soon. <laughs> so uh, okay, dude. Awesome. James, it was yeah, great chatting. So, thank you so much, Lucas Lappy, Doris Dev, and Canopy Humidifiers. Thank you so much for uh, coming on Minor Details. Uh, and as always, I am at iDraw on Receipts. So thanks, everybody. Peace. Sweet. Good times, man. I'm like, I need to, the sun is like baking me right now. <laughs> I could, I could see that. Um, but I, I hope that that was uh, what, uh, you know, you were looking for out of the podcast. Yeah. It was a good, it was a good rant. Love me a good rant. Yeah. No, it's, uh, I think, you know, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of valuable information in there. And I know like, there are people that have been encouraging us to get like some engineers in here and to have that kind of conversation. So I think like, I think students are going to really, I don't know. I think it'll be eye opening for students, especially because like to see the work that you guys have done, that is like, you know, it's like sweet work and they'll be like, Oh yeah. Like engineers can make things that are sweet. Like <laughs> let's, let's be good to them. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, something I didn't bring up, which I should have, is like, I mean, at Quirky, half of the engineers were industrial designers originally. Oh, yeah. That like, it is not this, you know, we define it as like this distinct line. But in reality, like, design engineers oftentimes come from, you know, industrial design or from mechanical engineering. It's not yeah. either or. Hmm. Yeah, well, I'm still recording the Zoom, so I could still throw that in there. Just throw it in there. Toss it in. I think... I think it is important because it's not, it's like a, it's, it's not fair to pigeonhole engineers or designers into their, uh, the degrees they got. Mm. Um, and I would, you know, some of the best design engineers are, it, it are industrial designers by training, uh, at quirky, we had a bunch and they were so, so good. Yeah. Um, yeah, the like a lot of well, a lot of the ones that I knew, they were all like ex smart guys. Are you are you referring to any in particular? I knew like, well, Nick Oxley, right? Was yeah, but he he was prime. He was trained as a mechanical engineer and then got his master's in industrial design. Gotcha. If I remember correctly, yeah, I think but like Laura Singh or something. Yeah, um, yeah, he did. I mean, um, the. Laura, Laura, Laura Sink and Jeff Groves, both industrial designers by training, um, both so, so good. Um, hmm. Jeff what, is now, he was at Phillips, actually. He was doing okay. like real hardcore engineering at yeah, Phillips Sonicare. What made them so good was as engineers? Um, I would say that their their communication ability is like, and that 3D understanding of parts and materials and um, getting it done, I would say engineers too often get like hung up on mm. some details that are 
going to work out. They're, they're going to work themselves out. Um, and they're on, they're understanding where the ID team is coming from because it's really easy for the engineers to be like, no, we can't do that done. And I'm saying, okay, we can't do that, but we could try this out. And like with an IDI, like it's not telling someone like, well, you can choose like this color, or you can choose like this dog shit color that no one's going to like, <laughs> like, well, I gave you an option and like, that's, it's not really, a, it's not an option. Yeah. Um, so I think they come to the table with those skills that a lot of engineers don't. Hmm. And they're oftentimes old. I think that's, they're, they're much more experienced because they've lived a life as an industrial designer and then lived their life as an engineer. So they've already had a lot of experience on both. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you think that there should be such a demarcation between industrial designers and engineers? It's the, another quote, I would say the work an engineer does is very different than the work a designer does. Um, the, and then, and then while designers do sweat the details, engineer has to sweat the details for a really long time. Right. So, um, on average, a project at, on, at Doris Dev lasts about nine months. That's kind of the kind of middle ground. If it's a simple project and it's a sprint, we're going to do a lot faster. If it's a more complex IOT product, it's going to take longer or it has complex compliance, it's gonna take longer. That product that took nine months, probably only took a month to design. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I would say that it's the, you got an engineer has to be okay with this delayed gratification, like mm. of, oh, I got this product launched. It only took me nine months. That's gotta feel <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, and an industrial designer often, I mean, cause you guys are trained with, um, you know, quick iteration, you know, quickly moving through products and that unfortunately doesn't work when to go from, you know, a EVT prototype to an ET prototype takes 60 days where there's just like a 60 day gap right there um or 45 yeah. days and it you know that really screws up the like design process of design quickly and iterate quickly and then wait 45 days to get something to come back <laughs> um so i think it's a different mindset and i do think it is helpful to have you know a the designers as this dreamer who are who are building something for the engineers to aspire to actually realize Mm -hmm. Um, so I think that is very important, uh, to, to divide that or else you get like me, who's in charge of, who's in charge of a lot of stuff at Canopy. Who's like, it's okay. We'll make the box uglier and cheaper and smaller. Like, <laughs> who cares? Right? Like there's no one to yell at me for that. So things like that, I think is, it, it's important to have someone to backstop against an engineer who's like, well, we don't have enough time for it. And yeah. I don't care. Um, you mean you mean you don't have Aaron Saxon advising you on the packaging and saying no, don't do that. 
So I, yes, we didn't talk about Aaron Saxton who designed Canopy, who did an amazing job. Um, And he, um, I unfortunately was tasked myself with designing the packaging. Um, And we went with a launch package that was beautiful and cool and had lots of colors on it and was way too expensive. And there was a lot of, you know, extra space in there. So uh, for our next orders, uh, we are um, actually chopping our packaging down and it's going to be as small as possible um, because uh, demand's a lot higher for air shipping inventory in, which Uh, sucks. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted, I also wanted to talk to you. I mean, we're still recording, so I'm probably just going to add all this back in. <laughs> um, but what, how has COVID affected things for you for, for the whole supply chain? I would say most, the, I mean, one, we can't get over there and like go through the development phase, you know, with the whole team at the factory um, making changes. So that sucks. That makes things a lot harder and it does make things slower and things get missed because of it. And there's a lot of missed opportunities because of it. Um, But the biggest impact that it's had um, is probably on the logistics side that um, we are, air air freight prices are four or five times what they used to be. Oh my gosh. So it's um, astonishing how much more expensive a product is to air freight to begin with. So a product used to be triple the cost to air freight it. Now it's 15 times what it should (laughs) have, it it used to be to air freight. So that's had a huge impact on clients um, and it's more expensive or fewer flights. So Mm. most air cargo went on passenger planes. So I flew to Hong Kong and back. There was like a bunch of product in the belly of that plane. Mm-hmm. Um, and now no one's flying back and forth to Asia. So as a result, you end up with planes that are dedicated to cargo mm. and they're not subsidized by passengers. I see. That's um, wild. Yeah. yeah. So that's been the huge, huge effect of it. And uh, ports in LA, um, and actually different ports have just had problems unpacking inventory. Um, so LA, for instance, is two weeks behind on the inventory. So our containers are just, you know, it used to take three or four days to, um, unload a ship. It's taking like two weeks. Yeah. Is so there... that's causing problems. Right. Is there any, like, is there any optimistic sign like that things are getting back on track with, with this kind of stuff or is it, has it kind of been the same? It's gotten worse. I think oh, it's gotten worse. It's gotten worse. Um, be- I think primarily because everyone cut their inventory forecast at, at the beginning of the year. Cause they're mm. like COVID is ruined the, you like ruined consumer spending and then it's like actually all these yuppies still have jobs and they're like (laughs) now buying houses and filling them with like outdoor furniture and filling them with this (laughs) crap so as a result everyone's like 
now shifted to over indexing on inventory and mm. it's caused like like way more demand than i think people expected for cargo for fulfillment resources um so as a result it's going to be bad and you know if i was on a podcast two months ago i would have been like everyone buy their holiday gifts now um yeah. but if you have not bought your holiday gifts you're not going to get them on time oh by gosh now. all it's right scary. the world is going to be out of it like we're going to be out of inventory of, of crap and so oh no well I, it's, gonna, I, it's not going to be a good christmas this year yeah. <laughs> um, there are going to be a lot of shit plays for christmas yeah um, um yeah well yeah well and and one more question about canopy you said you said nine months it took you guys it typically takes you guys nine months was canopy the same kind of time frame or like how did that did that start with like a factory or did that start with like how how did it start it it started in turn so no we didn't white label a product like this like we didn't start finding an existing product in market i think we saw this as an opportunity to one i hate humidifiers in my girlfriend that can't did this i'll give the pitch it started as humidifiers being a product that people need and they suck that yeah. you've got to clean them all the time they mold they're hard to clean um they're ugly they look like it like a teardrop or an elephant or like whatever and i saw and, and noticed that my girlfriend cleaned hers every week with like a q-tip and uh, vinegar which is insane and then um she used it year round because it was like this beauty skincare hack that i had like never thought of before didn't know that was a thing um yeah. and so was inspired by both of those factors to build a product that didn't look like an elephant was small enough to fit on an adult's nightstand um was designed to be used all year round um had features that were super easy to clean mm-hmm. um so canopy can just get thrown in the dishwasher awesome. and we looked at the category and you know thought about how all these products were made and our experience with you know ac products and a variety of other things we came in and said okay how do we one make sure there's this is a really product to engineer and go through compliance so for instance most humans are ac power you plug you know a cable in it goes in the wall there's no power adapter there's no like there's no extra plug on um, the product. And as a result, that product costs somewhere between 10 and $15,000 for just compliance per market it's sold in. So if you buy a humidifier that has, you know, plug that goes straight, that has prongs that go straight into the wall, if you want to then sell that product in the U S and in Canada, and then in Europe, each of those markets, somewhere between 10 and $15,000 just for compliance. Um, yeah, and require a factory that has that those compliance requirements all, for all of that. It ends up sucking. So we saw then said, okay, we'll we'll just put a USB C outlet on our like plug on our product. We'll run it with five volts. We're not going to use an AC fan. We're going to use a DC fan. DC fans are way cheaper than AC fans. They have no compliance requirements um, or no region specific compliance requirements there's a ton of compliance that goes on with that product specific to um because they're mainly used with 
electronics. They have to be, you know, fire safe and all that. Um, but the whole product does not need to get recertified uh, per region. Um, and then we're using a, you know, pre-approved UL adapter um, that has U- has USB plug on one side, USB C on the other, and it ends up being a lot cheaper. Mm. Um, so it, a lot of that we took the product and said, okay, how do we think about building a product with those they learned along the way, and how do we find work with some some of our factories in our network that can build a you know a semi complex electronic device um, cost effectively and within their expertise. Yeah. Um, and that's how you know we're working with a great supplier for this that has this you know weird background of building you know high volume low cost plastics for target products mm. and at the same time they make electronic dartboards as their like biggest owned business and so like <laughs> with that they've got like an understanding of like basic electronics and like they have the certifications and the ic requirements to build electronics but also have a huge breadth of knowledge in injection molding and like um high volume injection molding for a product like this cool um so that's how canopy came in and aaron killed it the, yeah. the i i can share some of the original designs that it, that aaron did actually oh that'd be well sweet for the product that once the the beautiful product we almost made that ended up on the editing room floor unfortunately oh no um but, i'm so sorry um, aaron for your loss <laughs> um but yeah that's canopy and yeah so how how long was that entire oh, process yeah. i I'm embarrassed how long it took because Doris Dev is like, we are a quick moving, fast moving product machine. Um, so from idea creation for us starting to work on it to launching it was 18 months. Okay. I mean, um, that's still, that's still pretty, pretty good turnaround. Uh, yes. I would say if we were a, if we were doing this and focusing on this <clears throat> more, um, we should have been able to do it in five months. Okay. Like, wow. So yeah. it it was it was a bit embarrassing how long how long it took. Um, but in... was it was there any benefit to the length? Because I can imagine that you couldn't focus all of your energy on Canopy. Like you had to you had other clients. So yeah, we were seventy two products. <laughs> in that that first 12 months so we were yeah uh, definitely so was there any benefit to actually taking that much time instead of the five months like were there discoveries made that m- you might not have made during the five months definitely um we made the the product changed drastically um and I would say if we were working as in a client, had a client in, in, in this role who told us, who handed off the industrial design and said, go make this product, we would have made a vastly more expensive product that people probably would not have liked as much. You'll judge the, the sketches. The sketches are beautiful though. Um, I think we, made the product in every and a lot of people said like and we built the prototype and we you know brought some people in who 
were in this, you know, we wanted to make a better humidifier. And then we were a bunch of, you know, nerdy bros trying to like build a humidifier for a beauty market. <laughs> and there are a humidifier that eventually turned into a humidifier for beauty. And I think that it was really helpful to get people in place with that vertical to see the prototype and go, it kind of doesn't look like a beauty product. Like yeah. I don't, I don't see it. Um, yeah. And so that having, you know, that time and effort and like, and enough time to have do that and hear that feedback and go, they're right. Damn it. <laughs> like, okay, let's like, let's think about this again. And how do we take, um, you know, input from other category, like other home goods categories and stuff like that and build it into a product that's like very warm and like, you know, mm. just rounded in and, and, and much it's not nearly as sharp as the original product was. Gotcha. Um, and I would say the original product looked sick in renders. Yeah. And then you get it in person and you're like, I don't see it. Like, mm. like interesting. Yeah. Um, and, so, and you got like a looks like you, you had gotten to the point of like a looks like prototype for this initial version. And yeah. Or... Um, yeah. It was a, looks like where it was not painted i don't believe but it was um you know all white um and it just didn't it didn't do it yeah gotcha yeah um, I, I was looking at the canopy and i've we just got a molecule mini the the uh -huh. air, air purifier and i feel like it fits very well beside that you know, because right now yes. we have we do have another we have like the Honeywell humidifier next to it, and that thing is, I don't know. There's there's some aspiration in the design there. I can see an industrial designer with the Honeywell one being like, you know, I want to make something really nice. There's just some decisions that I am not too crazy about, but I it looked see it would have looked that the sketch of that product looked really cool. Yeah. That Honeywell product, <laughs> for sure, for sure. But I could imagine the canopy sitting next to like the Molecule Mini and feeling very, you know, complimentary. Um, the when the we so we had kicked off tooling right when the Molecule Mini launched, and we saw the curves, and we we're like, "Damn, this this is close. We are close <laughs> on this card right now." Like, I mean, it's just like this you know, nice spline, soft spline that goes to the top. And we're like, damn, we're pretty close to that curve right there. But I mean, you know, you're, you're both, it's, it's two products that you're trying to, to fit into a home and feel homey and feel comfortable. And, you know, there's only so many ways that you could tackle something like that. There's definitely enough of a difference where it's like, oh, that's a, that's an air purifier or maybe it's a computer with the molecule, but <laughs> yeah. like yours is like, or a trash yeah. can. You never know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, uh, but yeah, no, I, I really like the canopy a lot. I'm, I'm with Chris Jenner on this one. <laughs> um, uh, but anyway, I we feel gonna, like we're going to officially end this. Yeah. I think we should officially end this. I mean, I feel like we could probably talk for another five hours, but yeah. Um, I got to get some lunch. I'm
if anyone is, I'm going to add one plug. I just moved to Austin. So if anyone is in Austin, hit me up. Yeah. I have three friends here. We can hang oh. out from a distance. Oh, well, I know two people. I know an engineer from Lifetime Brands and oh, wow. Derek, and Derek Elliott, the helicopter animator extraordinaire. Like oh, you really? should hit him up for sure. Um, cause he's an awesome renderer and animator. That's it. So, also so. actually the renders, oh, I'd love to hang out with him. And also the renders that you did for gravity blanket have turned in that when we first met have turned into a end cap gravity blanket at target. So I hope you feel proud of yourself. That's all you <laughs> right there. I had no idea. I yeah. need to, I need to go to my local target and seek it out. Um, um but All yeah, right. man, thank you so much. Again. This was great. And, uh, and yeah, I'm at I draw and receipts and we'll see you next time. <laughs>